I love that song. I almost just want to say amen at the end of it. You'll notice out in the parking lot there is a Hope Life unit. It's a traveling unit where they can do uh, all sorts of examinations for whether somebody is pregnant or not at different places. They can go to underprivileged communities. They can go to Indian reservations. It's a desire of Hope Life Center to purchase that where they aren't restricted by just being in two locations, Anago and Wausau. I'd encourage you to take a tour. It's very, very cool. Uh, it's something that I think is worth our praying for, our investing in financially to see what the Lord will do to protect and preserve life. So between services, or if the sermon is really boring, just right out the door, I will take notes of who left, but, you know, it's worth going to see. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we pray that the passion of the church is your holiness, your rightness in and through us. That we would with grace and humility share the saving knowledge of your son Jesus Christ with others. And with humility seek to live out your precepts. With humility seek to honor you. Father, I thank you for the book of Nehemiah that we have been able to study throughout the summer, and this being our last week, we pray you would tie the book together. And then as we go on to the Beatitudes in the fall, we pray that the richness that we felt from Habakkuk and Nehemiah in the summer would be the same richness of your word that would impact us in the fall. Father, guide our time, we ask. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Revival. Revival is kind of a strange word. And I would suggest it might be a word that is poorly understood within the church of Jesus Christ. I think we often use the word incorrectly. When we think of revival, we might think of a, a tent meeting. Probably in the middle of July, really hot and heavy, sweaty, it's difficult, the chairs are packed in. You might see Brother Dave Mahler wearing a 1960s plaid suit, polyester of course, with a matching tie. And he's pounding on the pulpit, speaking to retrobates, which is a fancy word for us sinners. And we're convicted by the the power of God, and then Jeff Weiss is up here, or maybe it's Brian Niemeyer, and they give us 19 verses of just as I am, giving people time in the very back corners to come up, to bow our knee and our heart before the Lord, to accept Christ as Savior. And we call that revival. And I don't want to downplay that. I think that has had important points and times in our history, and still does presently. But that's not revival. That's evangelism. 
Evangelism is reaching the dead with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Revival, revive, is taking the spiritually alive who are lethargic and resuscitating us for the gospel, for the empowerment of serving the Lord. Revival is for believers. You can't revive the dead. But you can revive the alive who are life support. Revival is for those of us who in our heart today might agree with these statements. There was a time in my life when I was more on fire for Jesus than I am today. If that's true, I'm a candidate for revival. If I say there was a time when my devotions were sweeter, my prayer life was more vibrant, my desire to share the gospel with others was more out there, I wanted to know more about Jesus then than I do today, then I'm a good candidate for revival. And today's text is about revival. It's about reviving the church in Jerusalem in the 5th century and the church in central Wisconsin in the 21st century. I want to pick up in Nehemiah 8. We'll read the first two verses. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. As you and I begin in verses 1 and 2, I'm going to give us four words, all beginning with the letter C. The first word is congregate. We need to congregate together if we want revival in our life. Now, according to verse 1, what time period we are dealing with is the first day of the seventh month. Now, if we go back to chapter 7, <coughs> we discover that the wall, after 50-some-odd days of being rebuilt, was finished in the 25th day of the sixth month. That means the wall has been built for exactly six days. It's been completed for six days. The completion of the wall has been done, but now the completion of the church needs to be done. And it starts with congregation. Ironically, in verse 1, it tells us that revival begins at Watergate. Now that strikes us in the United States as a bit awkward. We don't necessarily think of Watergate and revival in the same sentence. We think of Watergate as 1972, of President Richard Nixon and Vice President Gerald Ford. We think of Bernstein. We think of Deep Throat, the informant. We think of Charles Colson. We think of breaking and entering. We think of the Washington Post. That's what we think about when we think of Watergate. But in the 5th century B.C., 
Watergate was the place where revival began. Watergate was the place when the people came to a priest and a Levite, a scribe named Ezra. Understand that Ezra has been preaching for the last 13 years. We know this from the book of Ezra, which predates Nehemiah leaving the citadel of Susa and traveling to Jerusalem, leaving Persia, going 800 to 1,000 miles to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city of the great king because the walls of the king lie in ruins and people are mocking the greatness of God because his city lies in ruins. And so that's been built for the last 50 days. And then we get to Watergate where the people come to Ezra, who's been praying for 13 years. 13 years prior to 444 B.C., when Nehemiah goes to Jerusalem, he's been praying for revival. He's been praying for congregation. He's been praying that the people will gather to hear the Word of God, to be impacted by the Word of God, to be changed by the Word of God. But it hasn't happened. You see, rather than going to church on the Sabbat from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday to make a time to hear the word of the Lord, people found other things to do. Maybe the ski hill was beckoning. Maybe the fish were biting. Maybe the lynx were calling. Maybe work was beckoning. Maybe things got in the way. Maybe they stayed out too late the night before, and they didn't want to get up in the morning. For whatever reason, they didn't congregate. Or maybe they said to themselves, you know what? Ezra's rather boring. We can relate, can't we? He's just long-winded, has little to say. I don't want to waste my time with Ezra. And yet Scripture won't allow that conclusion. Let me read about Ezra. Ezra 7, the sixth verse. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given him, and the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Ezra was powerful. Ezra was eloquent. If the people had congregated, they would have been blessed. But by skipping corporate congregation, by skipping church, they missed the blessing that God had for them. They chose lesser pursuits. And the result is, from the book of Ezra, the people in Judah were biblically illiterate. When people were married, they weren't marrying people with a heart for the Lord. And when they interacted with unbelievers, the unbelievers impacted them rather than they impacting an unbelieving world. That's what was happening in the time of Ezra, poor Ezra. He's praying and praying and there's no revival. And this is a pastor's pastor. Let me read from Ezra 9.3. It said, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and my beard and I sat appalled. I'm really moved by this description. This is Pastor Ezra who is appalled. He's pulling hair from his head and his beard because the people are not embracing the holiness of God. This is a pastor who at two in the morning suddenly awakes with somebody 
from the congregation and the community on his mind. And rather than go back to bed, he spends time praying for him. This is a pastor who goes out and shares salvation by faith in Christ alone because he yearns for people to come to Jesus. This is a pastor who invests himself in Bible teaching and preaching because he wants people to know, to desperately know the Word of God and to have it transform their life, not for hedge knowledge, but heart transformation. That's what Ezra was like. And he's preaching for 13 years, and there's no response. But suddenly, 30 to 50,000 people, based on chapter 7, verse 66, 30 to 50,000 people suddenly have their hearts set on fire for the gospel. Suddenly, the things of God make sense. Suddenly, they have a desire to know God. And there's revival. There's excitement. There's change. There's transformation. There's confession. There's repentance. There's celebration. They're going forth in the mighty power of God. As I think of these verses in congregation, I think of two subpoints. Congregation subpoint one, one A. Maybe you've had the experience of trying to reach people with the gospel of Christ, and and it just hasn't gone well. Maybe you've gone out, maybe with Revive Wisconsin, or maybe in your workplace and. You shared about Christ, and nobody came to know him. Or maybe you have a child or a grandchild who you've poured yourself into, or you have a parent who doesn't know Jesus, and you've shared with that parent, and, and nothing happens. Or maybe you've taught, and it just hasn't gone the way you wanted. Maybe it was in One Way Club, or Children's Church, or Gen 180, or Sunday School. Or word, women of real devotion. Or young people or journeys. Maybe it was in men's Bible studies or a life group. Maybe it was out in the community and it just hasn't gone as you desire and, and you're ready to give up. And when you and I are ready to give up, remember Ezra. Be inspired by Ezra. The man preached to nobody for 13 years the man prayed for 13 years and the heavens seemed like brass and no response. 13 years. And suddenly God moved. And 30 to 50,000 people responded and there was revival. Be encouraged by Ezra. The second application from point one, one B is simple. The Bible calls us to congregate. If we want revival in our own lives, the Bible calls us to congregate. A very familiar passage from Hebrews 10, 24 and 5 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day that is the return of Christ happening. We are called to congregate. The ski hill can wait. 
The lynx will still be there. The fish will bite again in the afternoon or evening, the setting of the sun. Sometimes we allow all sorts of things to get in the way of, of congregating with God's people. And we do this as parents and we, we go after this recreational pursuit and this recreational pursuit and our kids grow up and, and they don't have much interest in God and they certainly don't have any interest in church. And we wonder why. And maybe, maybe we've modeled it for them. I think about a bonfire. If you have a bonfire in your backyard, and then you take one of the logs and you put it up, away from the fire, up on the bricks or the stones, what happens to that log? The fire dies. It begins to smolder. And it goes out. God created us to need one another. There are 60 one another passages in the New Testament alone. He created us to be in fellowship, to sharpen one another, to ignite and light one another. He created us to need one another in congregation. Revival starts with congregation, the first C. The second C towards revival is contemplation. Let me read verses 3 to 8, and I'm just going to tell you right now, you'll be happy that I'm reading and not you. You'll know why in a moment. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on the wooden platform that they had made for this purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shammai, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah on his right hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadaniah, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. No idea if I pronounced any of them right. Don't care. Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book, in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bannon, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. In verse 3, we see that Ezra preaches. He starts sometime around 6 in the morning and he goes to noon. Picture it like this. You have Pastor Jared preaching for six hours straight, no bathroom breaks. I added that part. And all the people were listening. Nobody was daydreaming. Nobody was checking their 
instrument in their hands. Nobody was pretending that they were following the text while we're texting somebody else. Nobody was on it checking the weather. Nobody was there looking at their Facebook or their Instagram or their Snapchat. They're all engaged in the Word of God. And when he's done, after six hours, the Levites come in and they have the small groups. So these are the life groups. This is Sue McDonald with Worman of Real Devotion. This is Isaiah with the men's Bible studies. And they're going over the text that has already been taught, applying it to people's lives for real transformation. And this goes on past the six original hours. And there's a renewed respect for the Word of God. And the people are crying out, Amen. But it's not a service that is out of control because as soon as they say amen, amen, then they get on their faces and there's reverence before the Lord. And the issue isn't the form. The issue isn't whether they raise their hands or sit on their hands, whether they say amen or they do not, whether they bow on their knees or they sit or they stand. The form is irrelevant. What matters is that they are present. Not just physically, they are spiritually present. They want transformation in their lives. They're not daydreaming. They're not passive. There's contemplation of the Word of God. Congregation, contemplation, and then celebration. These are the first three keys to revival. Let me read verses 9 to 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great joy, rejoicing, because they understood the words that were declared to them. This is revival. The assembly breaks out. But when they hear the word of the law, they are cut in their heart. They're contrite, there's confession, there's repentance. But rather than allow that to go on too long, which would lead to a morose type of situation, then Ezra says celebrate. There's all rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes back. When you leave the 99 and bring the one back, there's rejoicing in heaven. So there should be rejoicing here on earth. Certainly we need the confession. Certainly we need the repentance. Certainly we need to get right with the Lord. But when we do, we rejoice over the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God. If we want revival in our lives, it starts with congregation. We need to be with the people of God. Then it's contemplation. We need to be in the Word asking God to take the Word and apply it into our lives to transform us. And then we have the interlude of confession and repentance. Repentance means change, agreeing with God is confession, then change is repentance. And then we celebrate the goodness, the grace, the mercy of God. 30 to 50,000 people. 
this was a cause for incredible celebration. And then the final C is consecration. This is my very favorite. Verses 13 to 18. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths, not booths. They sound alike. I learned that earlier today when I read it and somebody thought I was talking about booths and they were all in. No, no. Booths. They dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, olive wood, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths for from the days of Joshua, here it says Jeshua, it's Joshua, it's the same person, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God, they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I love this. In verse 13, we have individuals. Now they, they got up at 6 in the morning. They listened to Pastor Jared until 12. And then we have Sue meeting with the Word people, and we have Isaiah meeting with the men's Bible studies, and we have life groups, and, and people are going over and over to apply the text. And then the leaders of the clans came back the next day. They canceled their calendars. They cleared it. They came back for more of Jared's teaching. Why? Because as the leader of the clans, they were responsible to teach the Word of God to those they were leading. That responsibility still exists. Maybe not with clans. I think of Ephesians chapter 5, the 25th verse says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And then verse 26 says that we are to have a sanctifying, consecrating effect on our wives. Do you remember the last three words? With the word. In other words, it's the responsibility of husbands to teach the word in the family. It's clearly what Ephesians 5.26 says. And then in Deuteronomy 6, it says fathers and mothers are to have a consecrating, sanctifying effect on their children by teaching them the word when they lie down, when they get up, when they're in, and when they go out, tell them the greatness of God. Constantly be training the next generation about the Lord. And so here we have these clan members who are taking it upon themselves. They spent the yesterday in Bible study and in study, and then today they clear their calendars to go out and to teach and while they're teaching and while they're reading, somebody opens up Leviticus 23. 
And that's where the booze, B-O-O-T-H-S, comes in. This is the Feast of Sukkot. This is when you would set up sticks on the flatness of your roof. And you would sleep under the stars for seven days every year in September, October. You would do that to remind yourself that because of idolatry, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. And in the midst of idolatry, God continued to provide and protect his people. That's what the Feast of Booze or Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot is all about. I was in Israel a number of years ago during the Feast of Sukkot or Tabernacle or Booze. I was hoping the group I'm taking, I'm taking 60 people, I was hoping that we would be in the middle of the feast. But the feast ends October 12th and we will arrive October 13th. But they might still see a little bit of remnant of it. You see, it's still practiced by the Harshim, the Haradim today. These are the professional whalers. You've seen them at the Western Wall. They're the individuals dressed all in black. They are supported by the nation in social security. When the Palestinian mandate of 1948, the British mandate, gave Israel the land, Israel then said to this group of whalers, we will pay you to pray at the wall on behalf of the nation. That's when there were only a few thousand. Now there's 110,000, and the nation's not so excited about them all being on Social Security day in and day out, year in and year out. Well, people who are from this group still practice the Feast of Tabernacles, as do many others who are secular. 90% of Israel is secular, and yet they go through the motions of some of the feasts just like we do, we have a secular nation that celebrates Easter and Christmas. They have a secular nation that celebrates at least Rishalt, the, the three major feasts, if not the four lesser major feasts as well. Back to our text. They've just finished building the wall. They've been a nation without a wall for 141 years. The paint is fresh. For the first time, they can sleep inside their houses in safety. None of them have ever experienced that ever in their life in Jerusalem before. And then someone reads Leviticus 23. This hasn't been practiced in generations. And yet they understand what James will write in James 1.22 that we are to be not hearers of the word only, but doers as well. And so for the first time, they're able to sleep safely in their houses. What do they do? Six days later, they go out, they build these little teepees, these pup tents, and for seven days, they stare at the sky in obedience to God. Now, why don't we do that today? Because Christ fulfilled the law for us. So we don't need to, but those who do not understand the Messiah has come, they're still under the Old Testament law, and that's why some still have 
the sacrifice of Sukkot, they build the tent and they sleep under the stars. What's amazing is that this group who had been in disobedience for 13 years and really 70 years prior to that in the captivity under Babylon and Persia, for 83 years they had ignored God's law and in two days they're not only reading God's law, they're not only confessing, they're not only repenting, they're not only celebrating, they're not only congregating, but they find an obscure passage in Leviticus 23, a passage that's not at all convenient. And they obey it. Because they're no longer embers smoldering. There's been revival. There's been transformation. There's been change. We're candidates for revival. If we can say there was a time in our life when we were more in love with Jesus than we are today. And when we need revival, we need congregation. We need contemplation of the word. We need celebration of God's grace and change. And we need consecration. Deciding to take God's word and applying it to our lives. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Nehemiah and the richness of it. A lot that we have learned, so much more that we could learn. I thank you prior for that, the four weeks we had in Habakkuk at the very beginning of the summer. And we learned about this man who learned about you as we learned alongside him. And as we go into the Beatitudes, we pray, Father, that these would be the attitudes that you put on in our lives and that we embrace in our lives for our betterment and your glory. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.